Hello and welcome to another episode of My Favorite Trees. My name is Thomas and I love trees. This episode is about the eastern white pine, the tallest conifer in eastern North America. It can be found across southeast Canada, the Great Lakes states, and from New England on down the Appalachian Range. Pine trees are often used to represent all conifers, which is frustrating, but understandable considering Pinus is the largest conifer genus and several conifer trees belong to what is called the pine family. This pine, in particular, is highly valued for how fast and straight it grows, and is also actually found alongside tea in the chain of events that led to the American colonies rising up against the British in the Revolutionary War. So let's dig in and find out more about what makes the eastern white pine one of my favorite trees. Just like the sugar maple, we'll start with the physical description. As mentioned in the intro, this tree is very tall. In a natural setting, these trees reach over 100 feet in height, some over 150 feet. But they could be taller. The old growth stands of white pine have been almost completely eliminated, which is an unfortunately all too common thing to say about many tree species. But prior to heavy logging in the 18th and 19th centuries, this tree reportedly grew to be over 200 feet tall. These days, you won't find trees that tall anywhere in North America east of the Rockies. The leaves are needle-shaped, which is to say that this tree bears needles, and these needles grow to be between 3 and 5 inches, finger to hand length. One of the best ways to tell apart needle-bearing trees is actually by how the needles attach themselves to the stem. For pines, their needles protrude from branches in little papery sheaths. Most North American pines only contain two or three needles per sheath, but the eastern white pine has five, which gives it an extra bushier look. Most conifers are also referred to as evergreen because they stay green all year. These trees do shed their needles, but this species does so every 18 months. So if you see needles falling from the white pine, those were leaves that were produced in the spring of last year. The seeds of pine trees are born in cones. This detail is the key distinction between gymnosperms and angiosperms, the latter bearing fruits that completely encase the seed. The cones of the white pine are about the size and shape of your standard ballpark hot dog. And I am aware that using a hot dog as a unit of measurement is a very American thing for me to do. You know what? Let's roll with that idea. Starting, ba starting back at the top, <clears throat> as mentioned in the intro, this tree is very tall. In a natural setting, these trees are capable of reaching a height of over 3,600 hot dogs tall. But prior to heavy logging in the 18th and 19th centuries could reach heights of Wow, over 4,800 hot dogs tall! Have fun with that unnecessarily obscure and specific fact. So what we're looking at is a very tall, bushy-looking needle tree with pine cones that kind of look like hot dogs with scales. Let's talk about what this pine is related to. The pine family, Pinaceae, includes several other trees that my mom would refer to as a pine such as spruces, firs, larches, and more. 
The main pine genus is called Pinus, which, wow, you guessed it, is Latin for pine. Now for this week's example as to why taxonomy is hard and dumb. Well, it's not always dumb, but it can be frustratingly complex. So there are around 120 pine species. Taxonomists like to get very, 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 very specific. So this genus is split into two subgenera, each subgenus split into two sections, each section split into two or three subsections. And from there, we can branch off into species. All of these divisions are based on various characteristics, such as where in the world they're native to, how many needles each sheath has, or whether or not the pine cones have little pokey bits on them that hurt your hand when you grab it. You were probably taught the taxonomic ranks in school. Domain, kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. I can't even remember that much a lot of the time. But when you get into the science field, it is just so many more levels than that. But let's finish off natural history with something more fun. The Latin name for white pine. No, no, I promise, this is fun. The Latin, or scientific name, for eastern white pine is Pinus strobus. Pinus, as I said, is Latin for pine, and strobus is the Latin version of a Greek word used to describe pine cones. So to translate, the scientific name of this tree is the pinecone pine. I mean, I mostly chose this species because of the role it's played in early American history, but it also works out that this is just the most basic of pines, right down to the name. But hey, speaking of history, let's switch over to fun story time. If you have ever been my coworker, you've heard this story. This has always been my example of the lesser known roles trees have played in human history, and it essentially gave me the idea for this podcast. Think back to classes on the American Revolutionary War, unless you're not from the United States. Well, this might have been taught outside of the United States. I don't know what schools teach out there. I don't even know what some schools teach in other parts of the United States. Anyway, What do you think of when you're asked about major events leading up to the American Revolutionary War? Surely everyone would think of the Boston Tea Party. No taxation without representation. Maybe the Stamp Act riots? I don't really remember too many of the details on that last one, but you know you've heard it before. Well, let me tell you about a riot that was just as important as the Boston Tea Party that I'm sure you were never taught in school. Our friend, the Eastern White Pine, was at the center of an event that took place a year before the Tea Party called the Pine Tree Riot of 1772. Starting off, it's important to note that Great Britain was indisputably the naval power of the world during the colonial era. But by the end of the 17th century, the island nation had done a fair job at chopping down all their old-growth forests. Tall, straight trees are vital for constructing single-stem mass, which for boat reasons was the best mast you could have. But what's this? Britain now has all these colonies in North America where the eastern white pine was growing tall, straight, and plentiful. The British king, as kings do, laid claim to all of these trees for the sake of his navy, and surveyors traveled the land marking eastern white pines larger than 12 inches in diameter with a broad arrow. These trees were known as the king's trees, 
and it was, of course, illegal for anyone to cut them down for any other purpose. Well, in 1722, another law was put in place in New Hampshire that stated no one could cut down any trees on their own property until a surveyor had come to mark any king's trees. As you can imagine, this upset a great deal of people. Folks started rebelling in their own incredibly minor and incredibly petty ways. Around this time, it suddenly became very fashionable to have white pine flooring in their homes. The most fashionable people were the ones whose floorboards were as close to 12 inches wide as possible. This was all fine and good, as the law wasn't really actively enforced for a few decades. But in 1766, New Hampshire got a new governor named John Wentworth, who was of the mindset that laws should be enforced, and sent out a deputy surveyor to actively start inspecting people's lands. This is where things really started to heat up between colonial sympathizers and enforcers of British rule. In 1772, six mills in the towns of Goffstown and Ware were found to have broken this law. The New Hampshire mills hired an attorney named Samuel Blodgett, I love these names, to persuade Governor Wentworth to drop the charges. Not only did Wentworth refuse, he offered a job to Blodgett as a surveyor, to which Blodgett accepted, probably saying something like, yippee, a raise. He was a bad attorney. The Goffstown mills quietly paid their fines, but the mill owners in Ware refused. In April of that year, a sheriff and his deputy were sent out to go arrest one of the Ware mill owners, old Ebenezer Mudgett. Mudgett was arrested, but after being released on bail, several of the townspeople gathered conspiratorially at his house. They discussed late into the night just what should be done about these oppressive lawmen. Finally, they decided to sneak into the hotel where the sheriff and deputy were staying and just beat the absolute heck out of them with wooden rods and poles. Now, to my extreme displeasure, these rioters also did some unsavory things to the sheriff's horses. Now, I'm not going to say what, you can look it up if you really want to know, but it was an absolutely unacceptable move because these poor creatures had nothing to do with what the townsfolk were upset about. Anyway... The rioters attempted to escape into the woods, but one was caught, and this guy snitched on everyone else involved. Everyone was brought to the New Hampshire Supreme Court, where they actually just got a slap on the wrist, being charged with disturbing the peace and fined 20 shillings each. Despite not having the same modern name recognition as the Boston Tea Party, this event was hugely important at the time. It was an example of colonials starting to reject Great Britain's imperial rule and proving that there were consequences for acts of oppression. But hey, what's the Eastern White Pine been up to since then? Well, even after America earned their independence, this tree continued to be valued as an important resource that helped fuel this country's westward expansion. Aside from being fast and straight growing, the white pine is also a wonderful wood that's really easy to work with and has a lovely light color to it. It can be used to make a wide variety of furniture, tools, and crafts. Pine tar is a sticky product made from decomposing stumps with heat and has historically been used as a sealant for ships and barrels. It can also be mixed with different substances to make many useful products like turpentine and treatments for tapeworms, dandruff, and more. I learned from JustBats.com, sadly not about the flying mammal, 
that baseball players use pine tar to help their grip on their baseball bats. I use a soap from a company called Dr. Squatch, whose flagship scent is pine tar. It's lovely. I smell like a tree. Eastern white pine trees have also been used as Christmas trees, which I'll talk about more in a later special Christmas episode. Now, as I've said, only 1% of the eastern white pine's pre-colonial old-growth forest remains. Heavy logging for these products is certainly one reason, but a fungus known as white pine blister rust is another. Many know eastern white pine as just white pine. Even I've been switching back and forth. But often I try to make the distinction because there is a species known as western white pine in the Pacific Northwest. That tree is being decimated by the white pine rust, and its range is sadly shrinking. Even on Washington's Olympic Peninsula, a prime landscape with lush old-growth temperate rainforests, it is a rare sight. In the two summers I've worked out there, I saw one western white pine tree. And you better believe I was excited. These things are just like their eastern cousins, but bigger. Rather than their cones being hot dog-sized, they're bratwurst-sized. Foresters have been making efforts for decades to save the eastern white pine, though. For the white pine rust to complete its life cycle, it must pass through both white pine and shrubs in the ribes genus, like currants and gooseberries. So to combat this, foresters have been eradicating native currants and gooseberries across the eastern United States. And that's kind of controversial, don't you think? Eliminating native plant species to save another native plant species? Thankfully, in recent years, we've gone for less destructive solutions, such as hybridizing ribes species to repopulate this region of the country with plants that do not host the white pine rust, or breeding eastern white pines that are genetically prone to resist the white pine rust. But sometimes, forest managers have to make hard decisions when it comes to protecting a highly valued tree. Sometimes the technology of an era doesn't give us the best options. But we make those decisions not just because of the commercial value of these trees. These trees hold value in the scenery they provide, and in the stories that define our culture. We take pride in the eastern white pine. That's why it's the provincial tree of Ontario, as well as the state tree of both Michigan and Maine. Maine actually loves that tree so much they call themselves the pine tree state, and have named the pine cone and tassel as their state flower. Maine has some really cool flowers, like columbines, bluebead lilies, and bloodroot. Admittedly, I just like that one's name. And they chose something that's not a flower, as their state flower. But you know what? I can't really blame them. The eastern white pine, after all, is one of my favorite trees. I want to thank all of you for listening to this podcast. If you have the time, leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help us grow. The music is by Academy Garden. You can find more of their stuff on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, Bandcamp. Wherever good music exists, they are there. My cover art is by Brittany Burnett. Find her incredible photography on Instagram at BoomerangBrit. Find me on Twitter at MyFavoriteTrees and get updates on future episodes and extra goodies. Also, tweet at me and tell me what your favorite tree is. 
If you'd like to thank me back, you can do so by donating to your favorite sustainable organization, some of which are listed on my website, mftpodcast.com. Now, go find a tree that you love and give it a hug. <laughs>